this. Okay, now it's recording. Okay, so when I was in um, RCIA, I began to realize that other people needed to know that story too in the same way that I did. And I really realized that one of, when one of the girls came in and uh, we were talking about Noah's Ark and how it prefigured baptism, being cleansed through the waters of the flood. And she said, wait, no one's from the Bible? And I was just shocked because who doesn't know that, right? But nowadays, we're living almost in a neo-pagan post-Christian society. We can't just assume that people know the Bible. So in RCIA, what we started doing is um, I created these uh, handouts, um, the pink one. This is an example of one. We would tell Bible stories at the beginning of every class. And what we were aiming to do was to give people, just like, like when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you start out with the outside pieces because they're the easiest ones, and then you have a frame and you can fit everything else in. If you know the outline of scripture, then everything else you read makes more sense because you can fit it in somewhere. You can see it in context of the whole big picture. So by telling these Bible stories and handing these little things out, um, we would try to give them that context. Then in VSI, Susan Sapper, you guys know, she told us the story in one sitting. She told us the story of scripture. And it was so inspiring. We all clapped when she was done because it was so good. And I was so inspired, I went out and I found art to go with all the pictures. I went online and um, listened to the videotape again of our class. And I wrote down her whole story word for word. And um, so that's what we're going to start with, is kind of to give you this context. You know most of these stories already, but we're going to let you hear it all in one fell swoop. And this is the way I would tell it to an RCIA class or an RCIC class. The kids love this. I would start with this very famous <coughs> painting by Vincent van Gogh that you probably know, um, Starry Night. And when you look at that, you can imagine how... He was looking into the sky, just wondering, what else is out there? You get a sense of awe and majesty. Where am I from? What is my purpose? And I especially love how right there in the middle, he had a church sticking up. As if maybe the answers are found there. Maybe the answers are found, you know, in this family of God. And so today we're going to tell that story of the family of God. It's a true story. In this story, God is Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And he has so much love. This love is overflowing. And he wants to share this love. And so he creates the angels. He gives the angels freedom to love him eternally or not to love. And some of the angels choose not to love God and to rebel against them. And they are expelled from heaven. That's Satan and his followers. And then God creates the heavens and the earth and the seas and the skies and the birds and the fish and the creeping things of every kind on earth. And then he created a new creature, one who could think and wonder and use his hands and use his heart. God creates Adam. And this new creature, Adam, God brought all the animals for Adam to name and have dominion over. But none was a suitable partner, so God puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and creates Eve. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, and they walked with God in the breezy part of the day and made a covenant with them, with God, a covenant of marriage be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But then Satan comes along and tempts them, and Adam and Eve take the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, and they eat it because they think it will make them like gods, and thus they reject the love of God. 
And they reject his plan for them in that moment of disobedience. But even in that moment of disobedience, God still loves them. And he gives them a plan right away. He says, I'm still going to make it possible for you to be with me, even though you turned away, even though you walked away, because I love you. And so throughout the centuries, God begins to work. He calls our father Noah. And Noah's called to build an ark and take his wife and children and their wives into the ark and all of the animals, two of every kind. And they're saved from the waters of the flood through the ark. And God makes a covenant, a promise with Noah. And the covenant is extended to this covenant family now. And he hangs up his weapon, his bow in the sky. And the rainbow becomes a mark, a sign that he will never flood the earth again. And those generations grew up, and later he calls Abraham, and Abraham is called from a distant land to come to, into the promised land. And God makes a covenant with Abraham as well. He promises Abraham that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and his covenant is extended to Abraham's tribe. Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and his 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's sons are jealous of the favorite son, Joseph, so they sell him into slavery into Egypt. And so Joseph goes down into Egypt, but God has a plan, a plan for the salvation of all the people in Israel. And Joseph is raised up to be the assistant to Pharaoh, and when the famine comes and Joseph's family has no food, they go down into Egypt. But Joseph already has prepared a way for them so they can be saved. And then the centuries pass, and the Pharaoh comes along who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't remember the Israelites, and he enslaves the Israelites. But still they grow and multiply, and they live in bitter slavery for 400 years until God calls another man, Moses, and speaks to him from a burning bush. He calls Moses to return to Egypt and lead his people to freedom. God sends Moses to ask Pharaoh to let his people go. But Pharaoh is too hard of heart, so God sends ten plagues. Plagues of blood in the river, of boils and frogs and locusts. And after the tenth plague, Pharaoh drives them out. But as soon as the Israelites leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them. But God leads Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea, safely to the other side, safely delivered from 400 years of slavery. And while they are in the desert, they have no food. <coughs> Excuse me. So God sends them <coughs> from the sky. <coughs> and when they are thirsty, God gives them water from the rock. And because they had lived in slavery for so long, <coughs> excuse me, he gives them rules to live by, to know how to love him and to know how to love each other. And with Moses and this new nation, God extends his covenant even farther. And when they disobeyed him and worshipped false idols, he forgave them and promised to lead them into the promised land. So Moses sends out 12 spies, including Joshua and Caleb, into the promised land to check it out. The spies returned from the promised land with huge grapes and stories of milk and honey, but they also told stories of huge soldiers, and the Israelites were too afraid to trust the Lord. So God decreed that because they failed to trust him, they would, um, due to their lack of trust and disobedience, they were doomed to wander the desert for 40 years. But after 400 years of slavery and 40 years of wandering in the desert, God leads them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And then in the most unlikely way, God leads them to capture the city of Jericho. 
God calls them to continues to call Joshua to fight the battles that need to be fought until they can settle peacefully in the promised land. And over the year, God raises up judges to lead Israel in times of difficulty or turmoil. Twelve judges lead Israel until the Israelites say, we want to be like other nations. We want a king. And even though God doesn't necessarily want this plan, he goes along with the plan and he gives them a king. At first he gives them Saul, but Saul is disobedient, so God rejects Saul. And then God leads Samuel to anoint Jesse's youngest son, David, the shepherd, to be the next king. And while David is still a young man, he trusts in the Lord and achieves great feats like slaying the giant Goliath. And David becomes a great king, a man after God's own heart. And God makes a new covenant with David, a covenant for a holy kingdom. But David is also a sinner, but God is full of love and forgiveness and promises David that he will send the Savior in his own line from the line of David. David's son Solomon is known from far and wide for his wisdom, and many people come to him from all over with riches and gifts. But Solomon's sons can't get along, and the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And through the time of difficulty and turmoil, God sends prophets, people who listen to the word of God and share his word with his people. One of these prophets is Isaiah, who cries out, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And God sends an angel with a burning ember to purify his lips. And the prophets would call people back to holiness to remind them of their Lord and God. When they were disobedient, God would raise up another prophet, like Elijah, who called down fire on a water-soaked altar to prove to God that he was the proof to the people that God was the true God, not Baal. The prophets kept on sharing the word of God, encouraging people, admonishing people. But the people are disobedient, so both kingdoms eventually fall to Assyria and Babylon, and the Israelites are exiled to foreign lands. But God always then sends prophets to them, saying, I will bring you back into the land. I will be faithful to you. And eventually they are brought back into the land, and they rebuild the temple. And they remember the promise God made to them so long ago. To Adam, the promise of the covenant, the covenant he renewed with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and they waited. Until the time was right, God sent his son. He calls this woman of Israel, Mary, and asks her a question, and Mary says yes. And the son of God becomes man, becomes one of us, takes on our flesh, and now he is one of us. We are part of his family and to the small, humble manger that he was born in, in the little town of Bethlehem, the town of the kingdom of, of King David, God led shepherds by, a, by an angel and magi by a star, all to pay him homage. And Jesus grows from a child to a man, and one day he begins to speak of the kingdom of God. He calls 12 men to follow him, and he calls them apostles. And then he teaches, and he heals, and he performs miracles and models holiness for us. And then finally, he gives his life for us on the cross. He descends into hell to free the just. And on the third day, he rises from the dead. And he teaches the 12 apostles and the other disciples about himself and about the church and about the plan that God has for us. And he ascends into heaven at the sit at the right hand of the Father, but he promised to send an advocate to guard the church. And nine days later, that advocate, that comforter came, 
the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and the disciples and dwelt within them. And they began to teach. The apostles and the disciples go out and share this good news to the whole world. And throughout history, God has raised up people to lead us to holiness. And every time in every walk of life, you and I, who are drawn into this family, are now called to be a part of this story, to take the good news in and to share it with those around us. This is the story of the family of God. It's a condensed version. So, it's so inspiring, right? So we know the story. Learn the story. If you don't, if, if some of those those stories were new to you, go and read them. They're they're wonderful. Then we focus on this structure. And if you've taken any kind of um, Bible story over the last decade, you've probably heard about um, covenants, particularly in the Bible stories with um, Scott Hahn. But it's the way that it's the easiest way to break up salvation history is into these covenants. It really is that major theme that kind of flows through. And the word covenant itself means to come together. But that definition is really a, um, a very pallid version of what covenant really was. Your covenant is this sacred blood bond between families. Um, when uh, like tribes would come together and become one tribe, they would do it through a covenant. You know, covenant was serious business. It wasn't just a contract to buy a piece of land. It was a serious exchange of persons. Um, and generally, and, and very often, like if you were going to adopt a child, it would be through a covenant. That when you engage in a covenant with someone, they become part of your family. And so you see sometimes comparisons between contracts and covenants. Um, and, you know, contracts are just a really, really watered-down version of covenants. Um, you know, in covenants where we exchange persons, contracts are just an exchange of property. Contracts are kind of based on the presumption that they'll probably be broken. So here are the penalties if you do break it. Um, you're exchanging goods and services or money, you know, just like you're purchasing land or you're establishing a trust or something like that. Um, contracts are verbal covenants. Covenant, when covenants are made, they would be sealed usually with something major like a sacrifice, like a blood sacrifice. And then that blood would be spilt on both parties. Number one, to show that joining of their blood, but it would also show that this is the penalty. If I fail on this, on this covenant, this is the penalty that I will incur. And so like um, you hear um, Joshua at the end of at the end, before he dies, he says to the people, you know, I put before you two options, um, the covenant or not, the blessing or the curse. You know, choose obedience and choose life, or choose disobedience and choose death. You know, and so really covenant making is a life and death situation. Um, again, if you studied Scott Hahn, this is super familiar because um, he takes these main covenants and he breaks them in into um, you know, each section. The covenant mediator is the person who stands in the place of all of those that the covenant is entered in with. So you would usually have two mediators that would do the negotiation and they would swear for their people and everything would be on them. And so our covenant mediators are our main characters we just talked about in the story. And if you go down to the third line, the covenant form, you can see how the covenant is being expanded over time. That God's starting off with this little covenant with Adam and Eve, and then he's expanding it to the family and to the tribe and to a nation and to a kingdom until eventually it encompasses all of the world under the Catholic Church with Jesus Christ. 
And then knowing what the audience is, you can see what their roles are, you know, as the head of each of those groups. The head of the marriage is the husband, the head of the kingdom is the king. And so that's their role within the covenant. And um, then the covenant signs, you know, something that, like the rainbow was the covenant sign of the flood that God promised never again to flood the earth. And circumcision was the blood sign that um, Abraham's people were becoming part of his covenant. And so each covenant has a sign that's significant. Um, this book I just found last week. Has anybody ever seen this book before, Bible Basics for Catholics? It's a short, short little book. It's an easy, easy read. It's by John Bergsma, and it is a fabulous overview of covenants. That's really all he goes into is covenant history. But he takes it and breaks it down into these images. And so he has an image for each of these covenants that, that he explains as he goes through, like on the um, Garden of Eden, like this, this gold, this is like, like represents the gold and all the beautiful things that are in the garden. And uh, the angel is kind of representing what's going to happen when this covenant is broken, when they get kicked out, and the angel has to guard the garden, right? And then the tree representing the tree of, could be the tree of life or the tree of um, knowledge of good and evil. But he goes through and he has an example, or this image, and he describes the image as he, he builds the image as he's describing the covenant. And so it's a way that if you teach, this is a fabulous way to convey this information to adults or kids. And in his book, he freely says, use my pictures, please. You know, I want you to share them. Um, here we have poor Isaac on the uh, altar getting ready to be sacrificed by his father. Uh, should have had the angel in that one showing the angel stopping him. Um, the Mosaic Covenant, then the, the, the thundercloud represents how kind of scary it was there up on the um, mountain when Moses was receiving the Ten Covenants. Uh, the Davidic Covenant, where the temple was finally going to be established. Uh, David brought the ark into Jerusalem to finally have um, Jerusalem then became the religious home for the Israelites. And then he mentions this um, interim covenant between the Davidic Covenant and the um, New Covenant, which a lot of people do. When, um, when the people came back from exile and um, the temple was being rebuilt, and then they stood there and they read the words of scripture to the people. And they stood there and listened all day long. And they cried because they had never heard these words before. And they swore to re-enter into this covenant. So it's kind of a re-establishment of the covenant. And you can see the little guy up top with the mouth open. He's the prophet proclaiming this new covenant that's going to be coming. And so that's why that's in dotted lines. I don't know if you can tell from there. But it's this, he's proclaiming something that he doesn't yet know what it is. But throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we hear them talk about this new covenant that's coming. But we don't know what it is until finally Jesus does come and establish that new covenant. And we have the Eucharist and then the church being born out of the side and the Holy Spirit coming out of the side. So it's a great resource. I would encourage you to take a look at it. So if we learn the story, we learn the covenants, then we need to learn the audience of who was being spoken to. And the best way to do that is through um, history and geography. Um, with history, basic timeline, know the periods of history. We get to know the ruling kingdoms and the languages and the geography. And a really good tool to use for history is this Jeff Cavins timeline. Is anybody familiar with this? The Bible timeline, if you've done the great um, Bible adventure with Jeff Cavins, this is what he uses. 
And so on here, he breaks it into these different periods. And then up here, he lists which covenant was operating during that period. And then there's a um, Jesus' bloodline follows along here with all of the key events in salvation history. And then this is talking about who was the dominant world power at the time and then what was going on in secular history. So it's a great easy way to tie together um, all of salvation history. And part of knowing scripture, like you wonder, why did Jesus come when he did? Why did he come where he did? And as you learn the, um, the history and geography, you begin to understand the answer to that question. Um, so here we have a map, and on the map, you can see, this, so this is ancient Near East, you can see you know, over here is what is eventually going to become Jerusalem, or Israel. We have Egypt, and it's an intersection of three continents, right? We have Africa, Asia over here, and then Europe up here. And in this intersection, you have the Fertile Crescent that fed most of that area. You can see these rivers that come through. This isn't showing mountains, but we have mountains here. But if you know this geography, you begin to understand um, kind of why it is that Jesus came where he came. Because right here in this tiny little place of Israel, this is the intersection of all three of these powers. Um, and then, like, the trade because this is the breadbasket of the world, because you have the lush, fertile um, delta of the Nile feeding the world. Whenever there is a, um, a famine, where did everybody go? Down into Egypt, right? Abraham came down there, and then um, Joseph brought his family down there because they have that dependable um, water source. Whereas like in Israel, there's no major rivers. This tiny Jordan River isn't much at all. And it comes from a spring, so it never floods. So they're completely dependent on rain. And so if you know that they're completely dependent on rain, you understand that they are completely dependent on the providence of the Lord. And that's one of the reasons God puts them there, and he tells, that, tells them that in Deuteronomy. I'm going to put you where you're dependent on rain, because then you will be dependent on me. And so that's part of the reason he puts them there. The other thing, looking at geography, you can see, uh, like Abraham is called out of Ur. He goes all the way up to Haran, comes down into the Promised Land, goes into Egypt for the famine, comes back, manages to make that journey quite well, right? The Israelites, when they're escaping Egypt from slavery, and they're wandering in the desert for 40 years, you look at this and they you go, well, yeah, this is a big desert. No wonder they wandered for 40 years. They were wandering here for 40 years. They had a divine blindfold on them. They couldn't find their way out of this teeny tiny little desert. And then when they did, eventually they come up this way around Jerusalem so that rather than going into the promised land the straight way, they come around from the east so that in order to conquer Jericho, they had to cross over the Jordan River. And remember, the ark parted the river for them, and they crossed through the waters just like they did when they crossed through the Red Sea. So you see that geography makes whole new sense of some of that, um, those stories. So learning the geography is important. Oh, this one. Here we see the 12 tribes of Israel, and so knowing those is um, a good thing to do. I'm going to kind of skip through that. But that'll bring us... Okay, not that to this. Here we have, again, uh, Israel and Jesus' time. Uh, Claire told you that I'm also a catechesis of the Good Shepherd Certified Instructor. We really root our teachings with the kids in geography. Because for one thing, it teaches them that Jesus was a real person. He walked on the earth. 
we start with the globe. We're here, Israel's here. How far is that? And then we drill our way down into this location. And every time we tell a story, we have a pin map, and we'll put, put the name of that into this map. So these kids are learning these stories about where people are coming from and who Jesus is speaking to. And um, even like in Luke and in Acts, when Jesus says, um, let me get this quote right. Oh. Um, okay, so I don't have a mouse. Okay. Um, but, but Jesus is talking, or talking about proclaiming the world to Judea and Samaria and beyond. And here we can see that in Acts, that's exactly what happened. They were um, proclaiming the truth in Jerusalem, and then they went up here into Samaria, and then Paul took it beyond and into the rest of the world. So we can see how the geography supports what's going on um, in Scripture. Okay. Um, so then... We learn, so, so that's the importance. So I'm not telling you very much about geography. Hopefully I'm convincing you to learn about geography and history. Because why did Jesus come when he came? He came when he came, because for one thing, the Israelites were ready. God had been raising them up through this period of time. They were finally ready to receive the Messiah. But also, if you look at history before then, the Assyrians had been conquering, and the Babylonians had been conquering, and then the Persians had been conquering, and there were all these successive empires, right? And then finally the Greeks had conquered a huge part of the known world, and they had established the Greek language throughout. The Greek language had become very common. And then the Romans came in, they conquered, and they established this network of roads. All of a sudden, travel became safe. You could go from... Africa all the way up to Britain, safely, on roads, travel was possible. So at the time when um, the world was a safe place um, geopolitically, it had a common language, kind of, and it had a safe way to travel, the world was ripe for the gospel. And so it was a perfect time for the Lord to come. And then... Geographically, you can see right there, poised in that little tiny section of Israel, that was the crossroads of three continents. And from there, they could leapfrog and spread the world, spread the word throughout the world. So knowing the geography and the history helps us to know why Jesus came, when he did, and where he did. So then we have the um, the style. Um, and the literature style, you know, if you're reading Moby Dick, you read it differently than you would read a Shakespearean sonnet, right? And you would read that differently than you would read your biology textbook, right? You, you, you expect different things from different types of literature. And the same way, we don't expect to hear scientific truths from a book uh, of poetry, you know? And so knowing what the author is intending to convey, how he's writing, helps us a lot. Um, this is one of the breakdowns that people commonly do for literature style. Uh, breaking down into the Law and Torah, which that would be the first five books of um, the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. Um, only two of those books are really law books, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But the Hebrews would refer to that as the Law because that was the establishment of the Old Covenant. Those first five books were what they had to establish the Old Covenant. And then from there, they had historical books that told the history of the Israelites, that told salvation history, 
wisdom books like um, uh, Sirach and Wisdom that gave you little bits of you know hints and guidance on how to, to manage your world. And sometimes, you know, you read some of those, and it's just really, it sounds like hints from Heloise, because it's that practical on how to live your life, you know, if you read through some of those. Um, and the wisdom books also sometimes can, can, people also consider them to include the books of poetry, like the Psalms and Song of Songs, um, that speak really of our response to God, really, more than anything. And just like in the Mass, we start off with the Old Testament, God speaking to us. And then we have the Psalms, we reply. And in the New Testament reading, God speaks to us. And the Alleluia acclamation, we reply. And then you have the Gospel, God speaks to us. And so that whole first part of the Mass is a dialogue going back and forth to us. But our biggest response is the Psalms. Because when you look into them, you can see every condition of human nature. You see joy and sadness and anguish and anger and anything you could possibly feel you're going to find in the psalms and that's one of the reasons the psalms is a responsorial whether we're reading it or singing it we always participate in the psalms because the psalms are the voice of the people you know responding back to god i digress okay 40 minutes right um and then the prophetic literature is the we think of prophetic as foretelling the future but um, to the people of the time, the prophets were the people who heard the Lord's voice and shared it with the people. They were telling them things they needed to know now. Usually what they were telling them was get your act together, right? And you know, people would fall out. You know, they, would, they would obey for a while, and then they would fall into sin after they got complacent. And then they would get conquered or something, so they'd cry out in anguish. God would send a prophet, and then they'd get their act back together, and then the whole cycle would go again. Um, that one map earlier that showed the, um, the 12 tribes of Judah, that one also shows where the prophets were when they were speaking. And knowing where they were speaking and when they were speaking in the context of history helps make sense of it. Were they talking to them before Assyria conquered them and warning them of it? Or were they conquering them, talking to them during the exile, telling them to keep their faith, God will deliver you? Where were they? You know, knowing where and when they are makes, helps you make sense of the prophets. Um, but because God is God, he also took those words of the prophet that were speaking directly to the people of the time, and he converted them, not converted, he filled them with meaning that even today we find. In fact, most of the description of the crucifixion is found in the prophet Isaiah, you know, because he was prophesying to the people, but he was also prophesying of the suffering servant that was to come, and that was Jesus. The details we know about crucifixion come from Isaiah. Um, again, I love my catechesis of the Good Shepherd. So here, these are little books that... Um, the kids have. They're, they're little, like one inch by two or three inches at the most. Every book of the Bible, we have one for the kids, and the name of the book is written on it, and then it's written by the Pentateuch, and then historical books, and the prophetic books, and then, or the um, wisdom books, and the prophetic books, right? And then we also have, on the New Testament, what I didn't know, or I never thought of until um, uh, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd Training, was that there's almost a parallel in the New Testament. Whereas Pentateuch established the Old Covenant, the Gospels established the New Testament. 
uh, New Covenant. The historical books told the history of the people. Acts tells the history of the early church. The wisdom literature gave them advice. The epistles give us advice. The prophets all spoke of the future, and Revelation speaks of the future. So we see a parallel in the literary styles from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Okay, so this is where I really wanted to get. And I've got five minutes to go through this. All of those things kind of lay the foundation. Now when I get into scripture, how am I going to really understand it? And the church gives us some tools. This first part we're going to fly through because you already know this stuff, but just for review. Um, we believe that the Bible is one story of salvation history. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant, meaning it cannot contain errors, and we'll explain that in just a sec. And it's interpreted by the magisterium. So we've already talked about the one story. The divinely inspired, inspire itself means breathe in, you know, that God's breath is in every word that was written of scripture. He is the principal author of scripture, but he cooperates with the human authors, or more, more strictly speaking, the human authors cooperated with God. But the human authors are also the true authors. Um, it's inerrant, without error, free from human error, because he is the author of scripture, and the Holy Spirit guarantees the inerrancy of scripture. Um, and it only teaches the truth properly understood. We're not reading Genesis to understand a scientific explanation of creation. We're reading Genesis to understand the fact that God created the world. Because at the time that um, the Israelites were beginning to understand the creation of the world, everybody else had gods who had claims on participating in somehow in the creation of the world. But they were all multiple gods who somehow were manipulating pre-existing material and our God created the world from nothing. Our God created their gods. They're worshiping cows. Our God created them. You know, they're worshiping the star. Our God created that. You know, everything they were worshiping, our God created. That was the point of the creation story in Genesis, was that God was the author of creation and that there were no other gods. And so, um, so if you read it with that in context, it makes sense. Everything listed in the creation account just about is a god in pagan religions. Um, okay, so another digression. It's interpreted by the magisterium, the magisterium being the teaching office of the church, um, guarded by the Holy Spirit. And so effectively, the Holy Spirit is the interpreter of the um, of sacred scripture. Okay, this four literal senses of scripture. These are the tools that the church gives us in a document called De Verbum. And if you look at... Let's see, the second beige page. Um, this is um, the homework that I'm giving the class in uh, the Master's um, Old Testament Scripture right now. And so we'll kind of walk through this as we walk through what these four senses of Scripture are. The first sense of Scripture is the literal sense. What literally was God saying? We'll break that open in a second. Then there are three spiritual senses. The first one is the allegorical or Christological, where do we find Christ in this scripture? Which is easy in the New Testament, right? But in the Old Testament, where do we find Christ? He's there. He's in every word of the Old Testament. We just need to find him. So the allegorical method is a way of tying that New Testament to the Old Testament, seeing the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The moral, that's easy, how we act. It's easy to define, less easy to do. And then the anagogical or eschatological, is toward the end of time. How is scripture pointing to the end of time? Just as the Old Testament prophets were pointing to the arrival of the Messiah, all of scripture is pointing to the fulfillment 
of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes again at the parousia, at the end of time. Everything we read points to that somehow. So we look for that as well. Um, so that going back to that literal sense, the church gives us three particular ways to interpret it literally. And when we say literal, we don't mean that if, if <coughs> I can't think of a bad example, but you know, not that everything actually happened, but everything has an actual meaning. What is the meaning of the literal meaning of that? So um, we look at it first, be attentive to the content and unity of sacred scripture. It's all one story. It can't contradict itself. If it seems like this is contradicting that, we're understanding one of them wrong. Go back and look again. Look at through the, the verses that surround that verse. Don't pick out a piece just by itself. What's that whole chapter say? What's that whole book say? What does that whole you know, group of books say? That's the content and unity of the scripture. Then we also say within the living tradition of the church, what have the fathers and doctors of the church said about this passage? What does um, uh, uh, the catechism say about this passage? You know, so how has the church always interpreted this passage? If we've always interpreted it when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have inherit eternal life, the church has always interpreted that. It's never going to change its interpretation. And so, um, you know, what has the church always said about a particular thing? And then the analogy of faith, meaning, okay, now we've looked at it within the context of all of Scripture. Let's look at it in the context of our whole faith as it's been lived out over the last 2,000 years. Does this piece of Scripture, the way we're interpreting it, support the faith, or is it somehow contradicting it? Again, if it's contradicting the faith, then we need to go back and look again and, and, and research and figure out, because it's never truth can't contradict truth. The truth of the faith is never going to contradict the truth of the Scriptures. Okay, so um, let's see. Going okay, so then okay, going back to those spiritual senses. I think we kind of have already talked about that. So if we look at it in the context of this, um, on the second page, you can see where I actually did a sample for them. And so you know, my suggestion to them was when you're reading scripture, because we're focusing on Old Testament in this class. When you're reading scripture. Start off prayerfully. Always read prayerfully first. But then look at it and say, okay, literally, what does it have? And then there's the questions there that lead you through, what is the literal sense of that? Going through those um, guidelines that we just had. Um, and then the spiritual sense. What is, allegorically, where do I find Christ in this? Especially in the Old Testament readings. Where does Christ appear? Um, the moral sense, what is it telling me to do? And how is it pointing to my um, eternal heavenly destiny? So, all in all, just do it. Daily reading, including the lectionary daily reading, but also just read through scripture. You know, read a chapter, a book at a time. Read through Genesis over a couple of weeks. Um, the Liturgy of the Hours is the, has pride of place in the church's prayer life. Read the, or participate in the Liturgy of the Hours. Those psalms speak our emotions. The more familiar you are with them, the more those psalms will come to life every time you read them. Um, and then scripture studies, if your parish is um, a part of FORM, there's a ton of scripture studies on form.org, which is an online access to a lot of what is taught by the Augustine Institute that um, our speaker Jim Beckman is here representing. And then Catholic scripture studies is another good one that's very solid. And then immerse yourself in scriptures, church architecture, art, movies. You saw the art that we put together for the story. 
Um, you know, movies like my kids' movies, they love The Prince of Egypt, and they know that story. That's a pretty authentically told cartoon about the story of the Exodus, you know? So look for, and then music. If you know, music is so easy to learn, right? And the Psalms are so easy for us to remember if we put them to music. Learn scriptural music, and then you'll know that scripture inside out. You know, whether it's praise and worship or whether it's something ancient that's chanted, learn music. And then you can see here, these are the windows in St. Joseph that tell the story of salvation history. And so they've incorporated all of St. Um, salvation history into these windows. And we take the kids up there and we tell them the story of salvation history. The same story we talked about at the beginning, but a lot shorter because, and we just hit those key moments. And so then all of these things start to make sense for them. These windows are a way of giving them that jigsaw puzzle. And then these are the second set of windows, and this is the New Testament side. So anyway, so um, let's close with a prayer to Our Lady, since we're running late. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, thank you.